Me, I also felt convicted as I sat down when Luke asked me, he asked me about my story, what God's done in my life. I just talked about me. Um, <laughs> I probably forgot to specify that um, uh, I've been challenged in um, my walk, how I was planning out my life and God, you know, you know how I was going to have a career and do all these sorts of things and how I was going to make money. And God just gently said to me, where do I fit into this? Look what I've done for you. What are you going to do for me? Um, and I hope that's not the theme of my passage today, the theme of my sermon today, but I hope that um, comes out as well. about Because of what God has done for us and who he is, we should then, as an overflow of that, serve him with all of our hearts. Um, I was um, working the other day, driving through the hills as I normally am, and I was actually working... Out here, I was working near Darren and Bex, actually. Um, I was meant to be shearing 30 sheep, and I got there, and they said, oh, could you do the lambs as well? Um, and I thought that meant just a couple extra, but it ended up, I was meant to shear 30, I shore 58. So I was running very late to my next job. And normally what I like to do is to um, make sure that I bypass a Lobethal bakery for lunch, but I didn't have time for that. Um, I had to stop at a servo, and I was in a bit of a hurry. And, um, yeah, just had to see what was in the window, see what was available. Um, went to a servo, saw there was a hot dog in the window all ready to go. Um, and I don't know how to say this nicely without sounding judgy or discriminatory. But the guy serving at the servo looked in his uh, low 20s. He had a face that looked like he was angry with the world because of how they judged him for his face. But his face was kind of his own fault, if you know what I mean. He was not doing himself any favours with some of the things he'd done to himself. And so he wasn't a happy-looking guy. And I said, I'd like the hot dog, please, with sauce and mustard. And as I said, I was in a hurry. So I was counting every second as he took the hot dog out, took it over to the other side of the kitchen, put sauce on it, got the mustard out, I know, the filmy stuff on top, so he took it to the sink, which was thoughtful, poured that in the sink until it became the right texture, took it back to the hot dog, I know, now the bag's wrecked, got to get another bag out, look for a bag. Um, And then I'm waiting, you know, this is meant to be quick, and the counter is about, you know, this wide, and I was sitting there ready with my hand to receive the hot dog, and he just put the hot dog just there. And... I like, like, Joe's going to tell me off for this. I literally said, it's fine, I'll get it. And I just walked, <laughs> grabbed it and walked out. And I was so frustrated at him and so annoyed at him um, for wasting my time and fancy having a job like this where you've got to talk, talk to people face-to-face and you've just got to be so grumpy about it. And then I was driving along and I was thinking, nah, it's actually, I've got nothing to be frustrated about. It doesn't really matter. It's actually really sad that he had been sucked up, he'd been sucked dry by the mediocrity of his job, by the mundaneness of his job. Yet, I'm not saying working in a servo is a bad job, but every job is what you make of it, every opportunity is what you make of it, and he had gotten sucked into the mediocrity of it. It killed his life, killed his personality. And I was like, you beauty, I've got a sermon illustration. 
Because I'm talking about how mediocrity of life can suck the promises of God away from us. Mediocrity of life can suck the promises of God out of us. And as we'll see, as I hope we end with, is that what we need is God himself. We don't just need his promises, we need God himself to give us life again. There'll probably be a bit of, be a bit of marrying up between my sermon and previous sermons and sermons to come. We're all, all these passages are looking at the same guy, Abraham. Um, verses 1 to 3, uh, we're going to look at um, when we, at, at the end. I'm just going to walk through verses 4 to 18. That's 4 to 14, sorry. 4 to 14. And I encourage you to uh, walk along with me, have your Bibles open. Um, I'm going to probably teach for 10, 15 minutes and then preach. Um, normally it's nice to sort of apply as we go. But the problem with that is if we're trying to apply directly what we're reading, the application would be we all need to be circumcised. So we don't want that. So just stick with me for a moment as we walk through the passage and then we'll, we'll switch gears at the end. Verses 4 to 5, my covenant, uh, God says to Abraham, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. My covenant is with you. It's the same covenant that's referred to in Genesis 15. I believe Mr. Budimir preached on this a couple of weeks ago. That it's not a different covenant. It's not a new covenant. It's the same covenant. But I think God had to remind Abraham about it, uh, as we'll look at later. God had to remind Abraham about this covenant. And plus the differences between chapter 15 and chapter 17 is chapter 15 seems to have an emphasis on the land. Chapter 17 has an emphasis on the offspring. The same covenant. Also, just uh, this is going to be a pinnacle moment for Abraham. Um, finally, his name is changed from Abram to Abraham. And I'm um, very honoured that I'm going to be a part of this journey for you. No longer do the preachers have to be conscious about Abram or Abraham. They can just say Abraham. You watch, I'll say Abram for the rest of the sermon. God changes his name. And there's a, there's a big meaning for this. There's a, um, um, it's not just, we do have depth to our meaning these days, but this has a very deep meaning. The name Abram means exalted father or father of many, whereas Abraham means father of many nations or father of a multitude of nations. Why does God change his name? Well, culturally, this will come up a bit, Culturally, this is what happened when a superior person um, ruled over an inferior person. A, a, a nation from another powerful nation would come and conquer another uh, less powerful nation. They would often change the name of the nation or the people in order to honour their God. Um, an example of that is Daniel. When Nebuchadnezzar takes Daniel and his friends to Babylon, he changes their names to honour his God and to change their identity. This is what, how God is communicating and relating to Abraham here, changing his name, letting him know, yes, I am superior over you and has an endearment to it as well. It is also prophesying who Abraham is and who he is going to be. Imagine, put yourself in Abraham's shoes. 
um, for the culture back then, when people would be travelling quite a, quite a distance from place to place, um, wasn't as densely populated as it is now, it'd take a long time, you'd be travelling for days and days or weeks before you come across another nomad or another traveller. And whenever they found one another, they'd greet one another with this long, extravagant exchange of greetings and names. And imagine Abraham, because his name has meaning, his name has depth. When a journeyer would meet him, they'd ask for his name, he'd say, my name is Abraham. And they'd go, wow, father of a multitude of nations. Wow, you, like, it means a lot. Where are your kids? And Abraham would be like, well, uh, I've just got Ishmael at the moment, just the one. And yeah, there'd be crickets in the background. And they'd say, well, your wife must be very happy. And Abraham would be like, well, uh, she's not from my wife either. She's from my, my, my servant, her servant. Imagine being in Abraham's shoes and God has promised you that you're going to have a lot of offspring. But now he starts saying, you're going to have a multitude of nations. And you just read the language of these verses. Behold, my covenant is with you. You've only got Ishmael. And next week, I believe the sermon will be about how Ishmael wasn't the plan. Abraham and Sarah jumped the gun. But God says, my covenant is with you. Just in case you forgot, Abraham, it's been 13 years. My covenant is with you. I'll make you a father of a multitude of nations. Abraham would have just been happy with father or father of some. But he's not just father of some, father of many, father of nations, father of many nations. I love in verse 5 how it says, For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I love the sovereignty of God that he can say something that is future tense in past tense because God is so sovereign, he knows it, he can say it as if it's past tense. It is going to happen. It, it's almost as if it has happened. I have made you. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Not just a bit fruitful, exceedingly. A lot. Can you put yourself in Abraham's shoes and he's been given this promise of an offspring and of land and God comes and reveals himself to him and he doesn't just affirm the promise, he stacks on the promise and he keeps stacking on the promise with all this language of exceedingly fruitful, not father of a few, father of many, father of many nations, so much so I'm going to change your name where your whole identity is this. In verse 7 and 8, God repeats um, this promise of land, uh, promise of land in verse 8, but also in verse 7, that this is going to be an eternal covenant with Abraham's descendants. And you can see God making a covenant with his descendants in Exodus chapter 15 onwards sort of thing. So verses 4 to 8 highlight what God is going to do, what God is going to do, much like chapter 15. God is going to do these things. He's going to make Abraham a father of a multitude of nations. And verses 9 to 14 then switches to what God expects of Abraham. And this is different from chapter 15. God doesn't lay an expectation or a command on Abraham in chapter 15 like he does here. He highlights what God expects of Abraham, and that is circumcision. 
Thank you, Luke. <laughs> now, we, we might, um, in, especially in today's society, we might uh, giggle at the concept of circumcision. A lot of people are like, what, why? <laughs> like, it just seems like a, such a funny concept. But we, in reality, we have to understand if we find the concept of circumcision unusual or funny, we're actually the weird ones. It's been a common, ongoing, culture, cultural thing for many, many years. And culturally for Abraham, this was actually a normal practice, normal practice for the ancient Near East. Um, I don't recommend the movie Year One at all with Jack Black or Michael Cera. The depiction of Abraham and his little cameo in that movie is not accurate. Abraham did not discover circumcision. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'll stop there. But it was a very, it was, and again, God was culturally relating to Abraham about how he would like him to identify with him as his God, how he would like him to make a covenant with him. Back then, it was more of a rite of puberty for young men or a rite of passage to, be, to become a man or even um, as they took a wife as, as a rite of marriage. What made it unique in um, Abraham's case, where God expects Abraham to do it, is the age, eight days old. The Hittites did do it on day seven. But just that one extra day, doctors say, gives that extra um, chance of the blood clotting better. So they don't bleed too much. But the age was unique, but also the fact that it was theological. Often it was a rite of passage for a man, but this was something that God wanted to um, identify their salvation with. Culturally also, covenants were always marked with the shedding of blood. That's just what was done. The covenant keepers had to signify that what they were about to enter into was going to cost them something. And before you think it might be a bit unfair or harsh on God to expect you know, the shedding of blood to mark the covenant, Reread Genesis 15. Another way that the covenant was marked was by cutting up animal pieces and laying them out and the person walking through the covenant, through the dead animals and, saying, and making the covenant and saying, if, you do, if I do not keep up my end of the covenant, I will be like these animals here. In Genesis 15, God does that. He puts himself on the line. He doesn't put Abraham on the line. The other thing that's hard for our individualistic and anti-legalistic mind to deal with is these young boys had no choice. And in verse 12, it also says um, any man that was brought into the household, any slave or anything like that. I'm not going to go into the slave topic. But it was almost against their will that this happened to them. They had no say in the matter. And we could almost compare it. It almost feels like a child being christened. What say do they have in their salvation when they have no free will? They have no say in the matter. But instead of thinking it as a works-based way for salvation, think about that young boy growing up and every time he saw this sign, it would be a constant reminder to him that he did nothing to earn the favour of God and that he was under Yahweh's covenant because of God's grace. There was nothing that he did to earn it. 
But the greater meaning of circumcision is that it signified something deeper. Circumcision signified something deeper. Paul says in his epistles, and and God says through Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 4, that the greater purpose for God's people was not circumcision of the body, circumcision of the flesh, but circumcision of the heart. It was meant to signify a cutting off of the flesh, just as God's people should cut off their sin and their fleshly desires, cutting themselves off from the world. This was God's plan all along. And this, when you think about it this way, it helps us understand how, how harsh verse 14 is. Anyone who's uncircumcised, I will cut them off from my people. It sounds harsh, but when you think about it, if someone comes to the point where they're going to say, I don't want to identify with God, I don't want to signify that I'm cutting off my fleshly desires and my sin, I'm cutting off the world, I don't want to identify with him, I don't want to signify this in any way, then it's not so much God cut them off, they chose to cut themselves off. So that's the passage, verses 4 to 14. Now I'm going to change gears completely now, um, as we remember and what we've just read and what we've just looked at. Um, in each row, hopefully there's enough, and thank you for those that organised it, there's sheets of paper and pen. It'd be great if anyone could have a sheet of paper and a pen with them. I'll give you a second to set that up. If you've got a notebook on you already, that'd be good. Okay, on, on, um, not sure how many people may have done this illustration before. Um, I thought it was cool when I first heard it and did it myself. Um, on the sheet of paper, I'd like you to write down um, as many promises and truths of God's word that you can hold close to your heart or that are true for you if you follow him. Even if you don't follow him or you're not sure, you can write down the promises from God's word for the Christian that you're like struggling to comprehend, struggling to believe that are true. Um, I'll help you out with some cues or some things you might want to write down, but I encourage you to write down some own personal truths for you that resonated with you in your walk. Um, we have eternal life. And I don't want you just, yeah, don't, don't just... Take it all from me, like make it personal. But I'll help you out if, if that's good. We're loved beyond comprehension. You're a child of the king. You're redeemed. You're reconciled. You're adopted. You're filled with the Spirit. You say, God is Jehovah Jireh to you. He provides all your needs. You're blessed. 
you're washed, you're healed, you are more than a conqueror. You're free. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. Okay, um, yeah, it would be good if you can fill it up as much as you can. Keep writing as, you, as they come to you, maybe. And it's on another part of the piece of paper. We've, we've talking about God's truths and God's promises for us. Um, write down another part of the paper what God's expectations are for us. Now, you might be thinking, legalism, ah, um, that's good. Um, but uh, what God expects of us can be summed up far more um, in a far more wholesome way, if that makes sense. Um, so you could say, God expects me to lay down my life, take up my cross, and follow him. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Does anyone know where I'm going with this exercise? Yes, it's good. It's good. Um, okay, cool. <clears throat> Feel free to keep writing, but cast your eyes over what you've written. Look at the promises, the truths, and look at the commands. <clears throat> the Christian life is a pretty big call. It's a pretty big calling. Like we're making some pretty bold statements on that page that we have offended the Lord God and he would still reconcile himself to us, that we are adopted, we're a child of the king, that we're redeemed, that we are filled with the spirit. Like, when we take a step back for a minute from an outside secular perspective, that's outlandish, really. <laughs> They're pretty bold statements. And do you find sometimes, isn't this a little bit hard to believe? Do you feel as though all those promises are true? Do you feel that they're true? And even if you could say, yeah, I believe they're true, do your actions throughout your day-to-day, week-to-week life prove that in your heart you don't actually believe what your head says you believe? what your mouth confesses to believe. Do your actions line up with your, with your, with your words? And do you look at the commands and you think, man, they're just as tough to keep as the promises are to believe? <clears throat> you might think, it just doesn't feel like this is true. And you, on top of that, unlike Abraham, where God comes and speaks to him face to face and makes a covenant with him, 
I don't feel like God's speaking to me. I don't feel like he's, he's, he's especially about being filled with the Spirit, I don't feel his, his Holy Spirit's presence. I don't feel like he's working in me. My quiet time feels dry. I just don't. I'm not feeling it. And maybe it's because just the mediocrity of life is just eating you up a little bit. That, you know, it's just every day feels the same. It's Monday again tomorrow. And this mediocrity has led to um, feeling down, depressed, lost. And these promises don't feel very true. And because of, these, because of the mediocrity of life, because the promises don't feel very true, you're struggling to live that out in your day-to-day walk. And you've given into sinful habits. You've given into things you don't want to be giving into. You've been doing things that just don't line up with those things on your sheet. You're not loving the Lord your God with all your heart. You're not loving neighbours. You're not following him dying to yourself. Okay, I'm going to ask you to do something a bit odd. I ask you to scrunch up that piece of paper. Scrunch it up. Don't fold it. That would ruin my analogy. Scrunch it up as much as you can. Get it nice and tight. Now let's return to chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. First line says, Abram was 99 years old when the Lord appeared to him. Now, the verse before says, chapter 16, verse 16 says, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. That's 13 years. 13 years of nothing significant happening in God's life, in, in Abram's life. God didn't show up to him and reveal himself face to face. That's 13 years of Abram believing that God has fulfilled his promise of offspring with Ishmael. That's 13 years of Abram and Sarah settling for second best and they didn't know it. And I only just thought of this this week, I never thought of this before, where we talk about how, um, and please don't giggle, but Abram and Sarah, I used to think you know, it's such a miracle that they conceived at that age. But, you know, at that age, when they think that God has fulfilled his promise through Hagar and Ishmael, they're not trying for a kid anymore. They've given up. They've settled for second best. And many of us, because of the mediocrity of life, we think this is it. The promises of God have been crushed and killed and we've given up as well or we're tempted to give up. We've been giving up bit by bit on certain aspects of our Christian walk. And then God comes to him. God comes to Abraham. And this is the first thing he says to him. And he prefaces this statement with everything that's to come. What I'm going to do to you, what I'm going to do for you, I'm going to fulfill all these promises and then some, and this is my expectation of you, Abraham. This is how he prefaces it. He says, I am God Almighty. I am God Almighty. God Almighty is uh, El Shaddai. 
in Hebrew. And this comes from uh, Shaddai. I'm happy to be proven wrong. Some scholars disagreed. But a lot of scholars said that El Shaddai came from the word Shaddai, Shadda, or something like that, meaning mountain peak. And so what it's referring to is that God is saying, as we've been singing about and Enoch was praying before, God is majestic and mighty. God Almighty, El Shaddai, majestic and mighty. And you can take it even further, where the reason that in ancient times they called it Shaddai, a mountain peak Shaddai, was that because it was shaped like a woman's breast. And what God is saying here is that I am your nourishment, Abraham. I am everything you need as a newborn babe needs its mother's milk. I am El Shaddai, I am God Almighty. I am mighty and majestic and I am everything that you need. This is how Abraham would have heard that. I've made a, a new friend lately who uh, we haven't known each other for long, but I can just tell we're going to be close. But he's had a terrible, terrible year, struggling with anxiety and depression. I've got altar call already. Um, he's been struggling with uh, anxiety and depression really intensely for a lot of the year. And I was just so encouraged by his testimony. He said, God, the gospel became so much more real to me in the midst of that. And he said, even in the midst of his worst week, where he just, he just felt like he'd gone insane, in the midst of his insanity, he said, I was able to say to God, God, even if I'm a dribbling mess for the rest of my life, knowing you is enough. That's enough for me. Um, unfold those pieces of paper. Unfold those pieces of paper and um, have a look at what you've written. And have a look at the, um, the character now, <laughs> to take the analogy further, of those pieces of paper, even if they've been torn a little bit. And you look about what you written, what you wrote a few minutes ago, what you believe to be true and what God's expectations are of you. Just because those pieces of, those pieces of paper and those, what you've written on there has been scrunched up and folded and you know, stressed out, does that make it any less true? Are those promises that you believe any less true because of what they've been through? The meteorocracy of life will kill the promises of God and scrunch it up and put pressure on it, but it doesn't make it any less true. Abraham was probably thinking, this is it. This is my life. He'd settled for second best. But his meteorocracy, giving into meteorocracy, did not make him make the promises any less true. In fact, God just came and gave him more promises. And if 13 years of silence from God doesn't make some promises from him untrue, then our mediocrity of our life isn't going to make anything in our life less true. And so what should our response to be to God when he, he has revealed himself to us in, a, in his word? Whether we feel like he's revealed himself to us or not, he has through his word. In the past he has, 
hopefully it's been less than 13 years. If God has revealed himself to you and he says, I am God Almighty, I am everything you need, I am mighty and majestic, what should our response be? It should be like Abram. He just fell on his face. Fell on his face in worship. And because God has prefaced everything with, I am God Almighty, I am everything you need, I am mighty, our response should be, okay, I want to fulfill these commands. I want to love the, Lord, love the Lord my God with all my heart. I want to take up my cross and follow him. And just to tie in circumcision to what we're doing today, what we're looking at today, the New Testament equivalent to circumcision is baptism. And for those of us who aren't baptised, um, baptism, coming to the point of baptism is a journey. But if you're not baptised and you don't want to be, that's saying, I don't want to identify with this wonderful God. I don't want to signify what has happened in my life, that I have died to myself and been raised together with him. And there's no need for shed blood for this new covenant because Jesus has shed his blood already for this new covenant. So don't let uh, the mediocrity of life kill the promises of God in, in you. Come back to him, the El Shaddai, God Almighty. Fall on your face before him. And we're in a Baptist church or a Baptist background church. You know, it's okay if you do that literally. It might seem odd in our context, but it's okay. But if you don't do it physically, do it in your heart. Come before him, repent of your sins, signify and identify with him that you want to die to yourself and be raised together with him. Live out his promises and fulfill his commands because he's, he's worthy of that. He's mighty. He's everything. He knows exactly what you need because he is exactly what you need. Let me pray as the, the band, I believe, will come up now. Dear God, um, I just feel this sermon would just be words um, from my mouth and not from your spirit um, unless you bless it. And I've felt convicted that I haven't practiced what I've prepared in many ways. And so, God, I just, I just ask for every heart here, whether they know you personally, intimately or not, that you would reveal yourself to them in a very real way, like you did to Abraham, that you are God Almighty. Their life may not... The circumstances of their life might say that doesn't feel true. But God, you need your Holy Spirit to reveal to all of us that it is true. Whether that be by a wonderful supernatural experience or just your Holy Spirit's peace coming upon us. Um, us repenting of how we've just given into the mediocrity of life. We've given into sin. We've given into numbing our pain with something else. And we've settled for second best when you've called us to a far greater life than that. And so, God, help us to die to ourselves, come to you in faith, take the example of Abraham, fall on our face, 
and worship you with all of our hearts, with a, with a true and contrite heart, that our hearts would be circumcised, dear Lord. I ask this in your powerful name. Amen.